Amen. It's so good to lift up the name of Jesus, isn't it? That's what it's all about. We give him all the glory. Welcome to church today. It's good to be with you. Those of you who are here in Mesa at South Mountain at Fountain Hills online in our chapel. Uh, we love that we get the opportunity to come together. And at this point, we're gonna open the word of God. And that's one of the important reasons that we gather together because God's word is true and it guides our lives and it helps us to understand God's plan for our lives and his standard of righteousness, the path to salvation. We trust the authoritative word of God that's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's sufficient. It's infallible. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We've been in the book of Exodus uh, since last summer, and we've been focusing on different parts of it as we go. Now we've been in the Ten Commandments, and today we are on the Sixth Commandment, which says, you shall not murder. Exodus 20, verse 13 says, you shall not murder. Murder. I know someone right now, you're like, whew, finally one that is not going to be convicting to me. Never done murder. Check. I'm off the hook this week. I know it's kind of a relief in some ways. Uh, but then again, I don't want to assume that none of you have murdered. If you have, God's grace is sufficient for you. Uh, this passage here, God makes it very clear, murder is not acceptable. In some translations, it says you shall not kill, and that's not technically incorrect, but murder is the truer uh, understanding of what is being forbidden here. All murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. So this command, you shall not commit murder, is telling us unjustified killing is against God's law, as well as manslaughter due to recklessness. And we know God at other times actually tells his people to kill in certain situations. I'll talk about some of those situations. So he's not going to contradict himself and then here say, you shall not kill. Really what he's forbidding is murder. And the word there for murder, it's the Hebrew word rasach, and it means to slay, to murder, to kill. It's very clear from context that God is forbidding murder. And it seems pretty clear that we shouldn't do this. It's rooted in what theologians would call God's natural law. This is a truth that's so deep, it's rooted in the fabric of creation. And everyone, every human just intrinsically knows that murder is wrong. That's why all religions, all societies pretty much have laws forbidding murder. And even atheists think it's wrong to murder. Isn't that interesting to think about? Like atheists, like I don't believe in God. I don't believe the Bible. I definitely don't believe the 10 commandments. And yet if you ask an atheist, like, well, do you think murder is wrong? They'd say, well, yeah, of course. Well, why? Like, why do you think it's wrong if you don't believe in God or the Bible? That's a good question. They don't believe in God, but atheists believe murder is wrong because they were made by God. They were made by God. The thumbprint of God is on all of our souls. And even though atheists don't believe in God, they were made like God. And that's true for all of us. So you know it's wrong to murder even if you've never been to church or read the Bible before because you were made by God and like God. That's not just why we know it's wrong, but that is actually why murder is wrong. In Genesis 1, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, 
so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female, he created them. Okay, so this passage, this uh, distinguishes you from all the rest of the creatures on the planet. All the animals, everything that scurries along the ground. Mankind is distinct and elevated from all the rest of the terrestrial creatures that exist. Okay, so let me just make this kind of practical. We live in a weird world today where people get confused about this. But when you think about what that means, that means humans are more important to God than animals. Like everybody loves a puppy. Puppies are cute. But babies are more important in God's eyes than puppies. Right? It's kind of sad that in a lot of ways, puppies have more rights than babies. Depending on which side of the birth canal the baby's on. And listen, I get it. We love our pets. A lot of you, you love pets. It's like... Pets can become part of the family. That's, that's good. That's a good thing to love your pets and everything. But I know we kind of use these terms. I just want to gently say this. Your pets are not kids. Just got to distinguish, okay? Like a puppy is not the same as a baby. Another example would be humans are more important to God than sea life. I know a lot of people, they talk about, you know, save the whales, right? And like, yeah, by all means, take care of, of the whales and the, the dolphins and the fish and don't pollute the oceans. By all means, yeah, that's good. But at the end of the day, humans are more important to God than the whales. Another example would be that humans are more important to God than the trees, like we're grateful for nature and it's beautiful. And like, yeah, by all means, like plant a tree if you're going to cut one down, I guess. But like at the end of the day, God cares more about people than create, the created things like trees. And another example even would be like the planet. You know, there's a lot of focus on saving the planet and protecting the, the planet. Save, save the planet, the, the climate, the ozone layer, all these things. Like, yeah, that's good. We should be good stewards with, with creation that God has entrusted us to rule over. But just be clear on this. God cares more about people than the planet. It's not that we shouldn't care about the planet, but God cares more about people than the planet. And you should always remember that even though we do want to take care of the planet, you know, by okay, recycle, don't, don't pollute, I guess, you know, it's good. But at the end of the day, it's all going to burn. <laughs> like Jesus, you, you read the Bible and Jesus, like Jesus is going to destroy the heaven and the earth completely and recreate it. There'll be a new heaven, a new earth. So yeah, you take care of the one you got while you've got it, but I'm not going to lose sleep over it because at the end of the day, I'm going to get a new one. It's going to be good. It's going to be all good in the end, okay? We just got to distinguish this. What really matters most to God are people because we're made in God's image and likeness. What does that really mean? What do we what does it mean that we're made in God's image and likeness? Well, we reflect his nature. We reflect the essence of who he is in many ways. Like our ability to reason and think is unlike any other 
animals or created thing. We have a sense of right and wrong as people that comes from God that animals don't have. Uh, for example, like God created the universe. He, he created everything that exists. Everything that was made was made by him. And we reflect his image in that we create as people too. Like we create societies and we build things and we express ourselves artistically because we're made in God's image and likeness. We're like him. God has a personality. I know some of you don't think about that. God has emotions like anger and joy and sadness and humor. God is funny. Did you know that? If you actually read the gospels and read what Jesus said, he's funny. God laughs and we have emotions. We have, God has thoughts. He thinks and we have thoughts. We, we think in a way that like fish don't think. And we think on a higher level than, than puppies. And then there's God. He thinks on a whole higher level than us. The Bible says your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Like we think to figure stuff out, right? God doesn't have to figure anything out. He already knows everything. So God has never said, you know what? I just had a thought. Because he already knows everything. But, but we're like him and we reflect his nature. God's nature is reflected in human nature. And, and you see this with both men and women. And especially when you consider us all together. Man and woman both bear God's image individually. So as an individual, you are an image bearer of God. But we're a more complete representation of God's likeness when you think about us together. That doesn't mean you have to get married to bear God's image, okay? Uh, but when you think about both men and women together, we're a more full representation of all of God's nature. So just think about this for a minute. Like God, the Bible describes him as a mighty warrior and as a compassionate comforter. He's a loving father and He's a nurturing provider. God loves justice and he shows mercy. And so you can kind of see how men and women tend to exhibit those qualities uh, strongly. God, he creates life and he'll use a husband and a wife to procreate life. So we're like him. We do the things he does because we're made in his image. God judges and he tells us to judge. He has authority and he sets mankind in authority to rule over creation. You just read that in Genesis. When you think about how we're like God, it makes sense why Jesus actually quoted this passage in Psalm 82, where this is what the scripture said. I said, you are God's son of the most high, all of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. This is an interesting passage. The word there, gods, it's the Hebrew word for God, Elohim, but it's translated with a lowercase g because we're not the same as the one true God, but we're like God. We're little gods. We're like little junior varsity gods. <laughs> we still die because we're not like eternal almighty God, but we're kind of like little Little representations. We're like little, like little gods, little G God. I know that's a weird verse. Uh, we don't typically call ourselves gods uh, in this church and think about it that way. If you go to a Mormon church, maybe think about it like that. Like we're going to become a god someday. But that's a whole other subject. Uh, <laughs> so you read this, you're like, what? Gods? That's weird. That's a weird way to think about it. But think about how we compare to the rest of creation. We're like on a whole nother level. 
You think about the eagles, they can soar in the sky. That's amazing. But we can fly to other planets. You think about a grizzly bear, it's like powerful. One swipe could take your head off. But humans, like we create nuclear reactors. That's a whole, that's a whole other level. Or, or like horses, like they're beautiful, beautiful creatures, just majestic. But horses are not as beautiful as women, right? <laughs> That's why, like, God created the animals. He said, that's good, you know, that's good. But it wasn't until he created woman that he said, that's very good. (laughs) And I came to encourage someone today. You know, I know this is a little harsh in some ways, but hopefully it'll encourage someone. Even an ugly woman is prettier than the prettiest animal. You know, I know this is really encouraging right now. Someone, you, you, you woke up today, you're like, I feel kind of bloated. I'm not having a good hair day. You're still prettier than the prettiest horse. I promise. So you're doing great. It's because we're cut from a different cloth. We're made in God's image and likeness. And so, because we're talking about murder, the most wicked and evil thing imaginable, imaginable would be trying to murder God or those made in God's image. And that's why in 1 Peter 2.17, it says, honor everyone. We talked about honor a lot last week, but honor everyone. How could you honor everyone? There are so many people who are dishonorable. Well, the key to understanding how that's possible is remembering that we're all made in God's image and likeness. So even a criminal who committed a horrible crime We don't just shoot him in the street like a dog. He gets a trial uh, from his peers and is treated with dignity. And even if he's executed, it's done humanely because people are made in God's image and likeness. So what that means is that murder is always wrong because humans are made in God's image. This is why it's wrong. So let's make it practical, just like on a personal level. Let's say you put in at work a request for time off and your boss denies your vacation request. Why can't you just kill him? (laughs) Well, because he's made in God's image. And being disrespected by someone, being annoyed by someone, it doesn't entitle you to take someone's life. That would be murder. Or let's say your neighbor has a way better view than you do and you want their property. Why can't you just kill them and take what they have? Because they're made in God's image. And just because someone's standing in the way of what you want doesn't entitle you to take their life. That would be murder. Or let's say... That let's, let's say like a woman gets pregnant and she wasn't planning on it. It wasn't really convenient with her life plan. Why would it be wrong to kill that baby? Because the baby is made in God's image. Just because a baby was conceived at an inconvenient time doesn't entitle you to take away the baby's life. That would be murder. And I want to highlight that because there are people who will say, you know, the Bible doesn't say anything about abortion. Yeah, it does. It says you shall not murder. The command you shall not murder doesn't have to list all the ways you can murder in order to be valid. The Bible doesn't specify a lot of the ways 
that you could murder someone. It doesn't go through the list. You know, you shall not murder by death through a thousand paper cuts. You shall not murder with a dirty bomb. It, does, it just says you shall not murder. It doesn't have to because it says don't murder. And, and you know what else? It doesn't specify all the reasons you might murder or all the different types of people you might murder. It doesn't have to go down the list. Like don't murder those kind of people. Don't murder those kind of people. It just says you do not murder. Don't do it. All abortion is murder. And uh, the pro-choice movement, they try to label other medical situations as abortions to confuse and obfuscate what's happening. So for example, a miscarriage is not, in God's eyes, an abortion. It's not a murder. It's just a tragic loss. Losing a baby and the effort to save a mother is not an abortion. It's not murder. It's prioritizing the life of the mother. Just like when you think about when the Titanic sank, you know, they only had so many lifeboats and they said, women and children first. That wouldn't work today because a lot of guys would be like, I'm a woman. Uh, but <laughs> You know, right now I'm really feeling like a woman. I think, I think you need to make some space for me. But they said that they weren't murdering the men. They were prioritizing the lives of the women and children. So it's not murder when you unavoidably lose a life. It's murder when you unjustifiably take a life. Does that make sense? So here the, here, here's the thing. All murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. People will interchange these terms loosely and they'll mislabel killings as murders when they don't approve of the situation. Now, someone getting killed is always tragic in a certain sense because we're made in God's image and likeness. But not all killing is murder, and some killings are even good, despite being tragic. I'll explain that in a second here. But, for example, Moses, we had a whole sermon about this at the beginning of this series, but... Moses gets oftentimes slandered on accident by modern-day pastors, I think, who claim that he murdered an Egyptian when the Bible never says that or even implies that he murdered the Egyptian. And what happens is people will read our own assumptions into the text and teach something that the Bible doesn't say. Look at, look at this. Exodus 2, 12 says, Looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now I can understand why you read that. It sounds pretty shady. I mean, like Moses is you know, doing something shady, right? Like he's looking both ways and he, he kills the guy and then he hides the body in the sand. I can see why people think, oh, he's a murderer. But that's not what the Bible actually says. First off, that phrase, seeing no one, there's a Hebrew ancient saying that mirrors that where it says, where there is no man, be a man. And you could make the argument, you know, he's looking for someone like, someone do something, intervene, you know, save this guy who's getting beaten to death, this Hebrew slave. Uh, but either way, he, he looks, sees no one, and then he kills the Egyptian. You think about Corrie Ten Boom during World War II, hiding the Jews from the Nazis. I'm sure she looked out her door and looked both ways, you know, seeing, seeing no Nazis. She broke the law of the land to do what was morally right in God's eyes. The word here that's used for killed in that verse, it's a different word. In Hebrew, it's the word nakah. It can be used to slay, to kill, to beat. Uh, 
But it's different than the word that appears in the sixth commandment, which says you shall not murder. That was a different word. Here, the word Moses killing the Egyptian. It was killing, but not all killing is murder. I did a whole sermon on this if you want to hear more about it. Uh, But Stephen talks about this in Acts chapter 7 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he makes it clear Moses was not a murderer. It says, he saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. Moses was defending a fellow Hebrew slave from being beaten to death by this Egyptian. Okay, so that's just one example of how not all killing is murder. Let me give you a few more practical examples that are relevant to us in modern times. First, self-defense is not murder. Self-defense is not murder. We live in Arizona. We've got a lot of gun owners. Maybe you're wondering, is it okay for me to have a gun for self-defense? If I'm a Christian and I'm supposed to love people, but you know, at the same time, there's a lot of bad people out there who might threaten me or my family. Like, is it okay if I have a gun for self-defense or should I just throw Bibles at them? You know, if they're, (laughs) the power of Christ compels you, stop. Well, it's okay to defend yourself and your family because your life is also valuable. And when someone tries to unjustly take your life, they forfeit the right to their life. Not just in the eyes of the law, but also in the eyes of God. In Exodus 22, it says this, if a thief is caught in the act of breaking into a house and is struck and killed in the process, the person who killed the thief is not guilty of murder. It's just like, you don't want to get killed? Don't go breaking into people's houses. Here's another example. Justified war is not murder. We got lots of veterans in the church and some of them wondering, you know, does God forgive me for what I did when I was deployed? Uh, Sometimes as a soldier, you have to take someone's life, but not all killing is murder. Generally speaking, if you're deployed in war, uh, it's a just war, and you had to take life, that's not a sin in God's eyes. There are people who commit murders in war zones. Maybe you kill someone who's innocent or they weren't a threat, but fighting on behalf of your nation in a just war against evil is not a sin in God's eyes. God actually helps good men fight against bad men. In Psalm 144, David says this, blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He's my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues people under me. Here's David talking about how God trains my hand for war, my fingers for battle. I mean, you're a Christian, you're probably thinking like, doesn't God just want me to use my fingers to play the guitar and worship music, you know? But yeah, he does, but he also trains your hand for battle to fight against evil and protect the innocent. That might be killing, but it's not necessarily murder. Here's another example. Capital punishment is not murder. When a murderer is convicted in trial, according to the law of the land, capital punishment can be justified. Taking the criminal's life actually proves the value of the victim's life, which was stolen. In Genesis 9, verse 6, it says, If anyone takes a human life, and it's talking about murder, 
that person's life will also be taken by human hands. For God made human beings in his own image. Here's another example. It's a sensitive example, but it's relevant in modern times. A legally justified police shooting is not murder. Now, this is relevant due to recent problems we've had and tensions, but I've seen situations, I've seen video where a criminal is resisting arrest or grabs for a cop's gun or pulls out his own weapon to attack the police officer and gets shot. That would be a legally justified killing by the police. It's not murder. It's not correct to call that a murder. Um, There are situations probably where a police officer has murdered someone, but the majority of times when a criminal is killed by police officers, that person brought that on themselves. We just got to be clear about that. Not all killing is murder. Romans 13 verse 4 says this, For the one in authority is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So the one in authority who bears the sword, that would apply to governing officials, judges, police officers. God establishes authority for our good to protect the innocent and to punish evildoers. And it's basically saying, if you don't want to fear those in authority, don't do what's wrong. Now, granted, when human beings are in authority... Human beings are sinners, and sometimes they abuse their authority. So that does happen, but this is giving us general guidance. All murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. So that's pretty clear, and I think most of us would agree that murder is wrong. But then here comes Jesus doing what he does best. He elevates the standard by revealing God's heart. That's what he always does. And he teaches on murder. uh, And he specifically addresses uh, those who were familiar with the law of God. And the Pharisees, for example, they were really devoted to the law, but they often misunderstood the Lord. They memorized the word of God, but they missed the heart of God. And there are Christians like that today. There are legalistic Christians, uh, not, not really any of you. Legalistic Christians don't really like our church or stick around very long usually. But I'm sure you grew up with some. Maybe you know some. Um, but legalistic Christians will get focused on actions when God also wants the right attitude. It's not just about doing the right thing, but also having the right heart. God wants you to do the right thing for the right reasons. So Jesus would come along, and, and he does this often, but he would say, you know, you, you understood the Old Testament to say this, but I want to reveal God's truth more fully. I want to give you a more full interpretation, understanding of what God wants. It's like the Old Testament, a lot of times, it would reveal the truth from God, but it was like black and white in two dimension, where Jesus comes along, puts it in color, makes it three-dimensional. So you see things more clearly oftentimes when you consider the Old Testament and the New Testament through the lens of Jesus. Here's an example in Matthew 5. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, now he's elevating it, that anyone who is angry 
with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka. See, they had their own four-letter words back then too. <laughs> Everybody has four-letter words throughout all human history. That word, that's an Aramaic word that really means like empty head. And it communicates the idea of spitting in disgust. So they're like, you know, flipping each other the finger, raka, you know. <laughs> anyone who says this is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled. See that word? Reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Okay, so Jesus is here talking about something that we've all experienced. Anger, hatred, division, broken relationships. There are all kinds of reasons that relationships get broken. Every one of us has probably lost a relationship at some time. Sometimes it's not your choice and someone else hurts you or abandons you or sins against you in a terrible way. Sometimes it's because of a misunderstanding or someone got offended, they got their feelings hurt. But here's Jesus, think about this, comparing what is probably the most universally understood wrongdoing murder to hate division, and broken relationships. That's astounding. And we remember this. Murder is wrong because people are made in God's image and life is precious. And then here's Jesus comparing that to broken relationships. In order to understand that, you have to go back to God's nature, who he is. In Genesis 1, we read this, but I want to emphasize different words. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. You notice that? Us, them, our. Who is us? God's talking. Let us make mankind in our image. Who's talking there? It's God. And he's talking in plural because God exists three in one. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are God they have always existed in relationship. God has never been alone. It means he didn't create us because he was lonely and needed a buddy. Like, I'm lonely, so lonely. I'm going to create someone to play with, you know. I'm sure it'll work out great. No, it's, it's good in a lot of ways. It's good to know that God didn't need you but he created you because he wanted you. God has always existed in relationship and that's at the core of his identity. The apostle John wrote in 1 John that God is love and love doesn't really work without someone to love. God is love and so he's always loved. The father has loves the son. The son loves the father. The spirit loves the father and glorifies the son. The son loves the spirit. There's all kinds of love going on there. It's like a hippie love song from the 60s. It's like so much love. Then God created man in his own image and likeness for relationships. So even the way God created us reflects his nature. It wasn't good 
when man was alone. And all the men said, amen. Because alone, we didn't reflect God's image and likeness fully. So God created woman for man to love. And, and woman can love her man. That's like a song, right? Like, when a man loves a woman. It's a good song. And then, you know what happens? And they have babies. <laughs> like... And then they get to love their babies. And then the babies grow up and they love their parents. And we get kind of the whole God thing going on. All this love. Lots of love happening there. We're reflecting his image and his likeness. So he's a personal God with a personal name, Yahweh. And he created us for personal relationship with him and with each other. And, and notice that even when God gave us physical life, it wasn't very good until we had the opportunity for relationship. And then, as you know, Adam and Eve, they broke God's law. They ate from the forbidden tree and that ushered in the curse of sin. And the curse of sin results in physical death and the death of relationship. Do you see the connection between death and the death of relationship? When Adam and Eve brought the curse of sin on mankind, the worst result wasn't the loss of immortality, but the loss of intimacy with God. The most tragic death that was ushered in by the curse of sin, it wasn't that mankind would now physically die, but that our relationship with God died. It's this broken relationship with God, that's what cost us eternal life. That, that's the thing, we, we, as Christians, we believe that there is a hell. Hell is real. Heaven is real, but everybody likes to believe in heaven. There's also a hell. Hell is real. Either Jesus is a liar or hell is real. Because Jesus talked about hell a lot. And so we know there's a hell and he describes it as a place of suffering and torment, weeping and gnashing of teeth, of fire. But the worst part about hell isn't the fire. I know people are like, yeah, the fire sounds really bad. But that's not the worst part. The worst part about hell is eternal separation from God with no hope of reconciliation. In hell, there is total loneliness. In hell, there is no commiserating or comforting each other. Yeah, I know it's bad, man, but we'll get through it together. No, you're alone and you'll always be alone in hell. That is the worst part. It's eternal loss of relationship with God and other people. That's hell, separation from God with no hope of reconciliation. So here's Jesus talking about murder, hate, and reconciliation. And you have to see the full picture and the full heart of God to understand this. Murder is wrong because it unjustly ends a life. Hate is wrong because it unnecessarily ends relationship. The key word here is unnecessarily. Unnecessarily. Just like sometimes in this world, tragically, people have to kill in self-defense Sometimes you have to end a relationship in self-defense. You don't want to have to use deadly force if possible, but sometimes you have to. And it's the same thing in some relationships. You might deal with abusive people who are evil. And it's like, look, I don't hate you, but I can't be in relationship with you. It's not that I don't love you, but in order to love myself and my family, I have to protect us from you. Does that make sense? 
Like maybe you have some family members like this. Maybe hopefully they're distant family members, but it's like, I don't hate you, but I have to protect my family from your crazy. And so it's like, you're not coming to the birthday party. Like, I don't want you calling me because I have to protect us. It's the same with relationships. And sometimes you have to create boundaries to protect yourself. And it's not that you just want to kill the relationship like you're dead to me forever, but it's more about limiting their access. And people ask me about this all the time because, you know, hey, we're Christians. We're supposed to love people. But, hey, I got this, I got this abusive family member. What should I do? You just need to know this. It's not wrong for Christians to create boundaries with abusive people. You can love someone and still block them on social media. You can love someone and still block their phone number. It's not that you hate them, but you might have to protect yourself from them. So you might not invite them to a birthday party. You might not want them calling or dropping manipulative text messages in to your brain at all hours of the day. It's not unchristian to set boundaries. Even Jesus didn't give everybody full access to him. But here's the thing. A lot of times we don't cut people off for self-protection. We get offended. We become bitter. We allow hate to grow. And we murder the relationship. I know some of you, you might be thinking like, ah, there's a lot of people that have hurt me. At least I haven't murdered them. And honestly, yeah. Take your wins where you can get them. We got a lot of struggles, but you haven't murdered them. So there is that. But in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus makes it clear that God doesn't want us going through the motions of Christian worship like everything is fine when you are living with murderous contempt in your heart. Because if you're angry with, if you hate your brother or sister, to God, it's like you've murdered them in your heart. Our whole faith, our whole faith is about reconciliation. Because we were sinners, all of us. I was a sinner, you were a sinner. We're all, it's like, we're all sinners. And we were reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. Sin separates us from God. That's what it does. Sin separates us from God. Fortunately, in this life, we have the opportunity to be reconciled to God what we were talking about was in hell, the opportunity for reconciliation goes away. But while you're still breathing, you still have opportunity for reconciliation. In Romans 5, it says, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Okay, this is important. We were enemies of God when we were dead in sin. Sometimes people will say, you know, like, we're all God's children. And that's not true. We're not all God's children. Before you accepted Jesus, you were not a child of God. You were created by God, but you were an enemy of God. And what this is saying that we were God's enemies, but we were reconciled, reconciled to God through the death of his son, Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, that allowed us to be reconciled. And what it's saying here is then, man, if the death of Jesus reconciled us to God, how much more does the resurrection of Jesus reconcile us to God? I would say it this way. God allowed Jesus to be killed physically 
so that you could be healed relationally. God allowed Jesus to be killed physically so that you could be healed relationally. The death of Jesus saves us from hell and suffering alone for eternity. But the resurrection of Jesus assures us of eternal relationship with God forever in heaven. Jesus is talking about murder and broken relationships in Matthew 5. And we all agree murder is wrong, but you could make the argument that in God's eyes, murdering a relationship is just as bad. I know it's kind of hard to think about, but consider this. How often do you hear people talk about how divorce can be even more painful than death? I've talked to people where, you know, like a guy's wife ran off with another guy. She divorced him. And people will say, you know, it would have hurt less if she had died. Because the betrayal and the death of the relationship can hurt more than even the death of a person. There are some of you, you have been hurt and we've all been hurt because people hurt people. It's just, it's just what happens. Like we're sinners, we hurt people. We've all been hurt, but what can happen is, is that can turn into bitterness and build up into hate. And maybe in your heart, you're a Christian, but you're going through the motions of Christianity and you're thinking, you know, at least I haven't murdered them. But God is saying like, yeah, but in your heart, it's like you have. God wants us to live as messengers of reconciliation. And I know a lot of people have been hurt and you think, well, how could I ever get over this? How could I, how could I ever get past this hurt, this anger and fix things? And I'll just say, you can't, but God can. Here's what it says in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So through Christ, we've been reconciled to God. And then this next passage talks about how we can reconcile with one another. It's talking about how Jews and Gentiles who hated each other can be reconciled. In Ephesians 2, it says, For he, Christ himself, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. The worst imaginable sin would be for people to try to murder God, right? We know murder is wrong, but murdering the one who gave you life, that just seems especially wrong. Like we know murder is wrong, but the idea that a kid would try to murder his own parents just is especially evil. This is why the message of the cross seems like foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. God sent his son, Jesus, who was fully God and fully man. He lowered himself to be like us so he could be murdered by us. And more than one thing can be true at the same time. 
Jesus willingly laid his life down as a sacrifice. That's true. And mankind unjustifiably took Jesus' life. That's murder. That's also true. And God the Father justifiably punished the Son and poured his wrath on him because the curse of sin was placed on him. That's also true. This was done so that we could be reconciled to God. God allowed his Son to be murdered so that our relationship with God and with one another could be healed and be restored. At the cross, mankind completed the work that Adam began in the garden. We murdered the son of God who came in the flesh for relationship. That's astounding. It speaks to the love of God for us. But the message of the resurrection makes us ministers of reconciliation. Someone drop a beat because I'm going to start rapping that right now. <laughs> the message of the resurrection makes us ministers of reconciliation. That's what we've just read in scripture. God has given us the gift of life through faith in Jesus and restored relationship. So we can't take any of those things for granted. We've got to recognize that life is precious and relationship is what we were made for. We need to be those who value and fight for relationship at all costs, willing to forgive those who've hurt us and sinned against us. I think about how lately, this is hard for me too, it's hard for all of us. Uh, not that long ago, I was struggling. There was a, a, another pastor who I was really mad at. Okay, I'm gonna get real right now. There was this pastor who he was talking bad about people I love online. And it really bothered me. I got super mad. I was bitter towards him. I know I was mad because I actually would start thinking, I wish I wasn't a pastor so I could meet up with that guy and fight him. <laughs> That's when you know you're like out of bounds, right? You know. And so uh, one day I was talking to a dude. I started talking a little bit of trash about this pastor I don't like. And the dude called me out. Nobody likes being called out, right? But the Holy Spirit started convicting me. And I was like, yeah, you know, you're right. This, this isn't good. This isn't good. And so I got the, the guy's number. And I mean, I'm telling you guys, I really did not like this guy. But I text him and I'm like, man, I'm sorry for having bitterness towards you. I don't want that. I want us to have a relationship. We're both brothers in Christ. We got to stand side by side in this crazy world. So will you forgive me? And he responded super graciously, like, yeah, I'm sorry too. Please forgive me. Like, I want, I want to be on the same side as you. And here's the thing. We still don't agree on some things. And we're probably never going to be best friends. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. But we did have reconciliation of the relationship. And here we were, two pastors going to church, singing songs, raising our hands, preaching sermons. But there was bitterness. And Jesus says, hey, don't go through the motions of worship when you're angry at your brother. Leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled and then come and worship the Lord. After first service, a man told me outside how his father had sexually molested him and his sisters. And he hated his father for years and would even fantasize about killing him. And he would use alcohol and drugs to self-medicate and deal with the pain. Eventually he came to Christ and he started to feel convicted that God wanted him to forgive his father. How do you forgive in that kind of situation? It's like I said, you can't, but God can. He can help you to forgive. And he went and he not only forgave his father, 
He said God, when he forgave, God delivered him from the need for drugs and alcohol. Because through forgiveness, the pain was healed. And then God used this man to lead that very father of his to Christ. And he said his dad would call him after church and tell him all the ways he was getting to serve and how excited he was. And now since then, the, the father had died and he's in heaven with Jesus. That is the ministry of reconciliation that God has called us to as his people. That we have the opportunity to love one another. I, I'll tell you what, I have never regretted reconciling with someone. But I have regretted waiting as long as I did to do it. And that's probably true for someone here today. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me. Just close your eyes for a moment. And first, if you're a Christian, and maybe right now you're feeling some conviction like I have, where God's bringing to your mind that there's someone that you're bitter towards or you hate them, or, or there's a, a wall of division and hostility that the Lord wants to tear down. And, and if he's bringing that to your mind, it's because he wants to help you to overcome it. And what seems impossible for man is possible with God. And so if you'll just open your heart to the Lord and invite him to have your way, he'll begin a healing work in you. He will allow you to heal the person who hurt you. When you ask God to help you forgive, that is one request he will always say yes to. Because forgiveness is in his nature and it pleases him. So if you need to do that, maybe this is your day for that, that you're going to begin to forgive someone and just release them in your heart. Maybe after service, you're going to go up to them or you're going to use your phone to reach out to them and be a minister, a messenger of reconciliation. And maybe you're a church and you are here today, you need to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. And you heard us talking about being an enemy of God and hell and an eternity of separation from God. And on some level, the Holy Spirit's convicting you. That's your future unless you turn from sin and accept Jesus as your Lord. And God is offering you salvation today. And it's up to you whether to accept or reject that gift, but really no one else can decide for you. You're accountable for your decision to either accept Jesus or reject him. You know the stakes. And maybe this is a moment for you to receive forgiveness and eternal life. And so if, if that's you and you know this is your moment, I'm going to lead you in this prayer right now. And you're not saved by praying the right prayer. It's, it's the faith that's expressed by the prayer. So I'm going to just lead you and invite you to pray this with me. Just say, God, I've sinned against you. I confess my sin and I need your forgiveness. I ask that you would save me. I put my trust in Jesus. I believe he's the son of God. And I believe he died on the cross for my sins. And I believe he rose again. And that through faith in Jesus, I'm forgiven and receive eternal life. I wanna follow Jesus from this day forward. I ask you Lord to lead me. I thank you for always loving me and for the gift of relationship with you. Help me to love other people. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen.